This is how they kill you. Uh, you ever heard the term uh, death by a thousand cuts? Uh, or um, how to boil a frog, right? They say you put a frog in some tepid water and then you turn it up to a boil. And don't, that's a fake picture, people. I had to tell people in the first service, too. It's not a real picture. We didn't, no frogs were harmed in the making of the sermon, I promise you. But you've all heard that. Uh, it's actually a myth. Uh, if you put a frog in tepid water, it will not chill. It will jump out, okay? Uh, in fact, if you throw a frog into boiling water, it will actually die instantly. So uh, that's not my point. <laughs> Don't know why I went down that tangent. That's all right. Uh, we've all heard the term, though. And I think it's happening to you and I way more than we often even want to admit or acknowledge. Uh, the sermon that we're actually, uh, the series, I should say, that we're actually starting today, uh, I think might be one of the most important series that we've ever done uh, here at TLC in the last four and a half years. And I know that sounds like, um, <laughs> kind of like majorly like I'm over blowing this series, but I do think that there's something so powerful and necessary that we need to hear as we engage as a church uh, that I think this very well might be the most important series we've ever done. Um, and the thing that makes me most nervous about it, to be honest, is that I'm going to, I'm going to preach some of these messages as a hypocrite. I don't want to, I don't think God has me teaching this series because it's something that you need to hear. I think God has me teaching this series because it's something that I need to hear. And I hope that you guys will kind of come along on this journey with me, that together we'll figure out how God may want to reorient, reorder, uh, re-engage our lives together. And that it'll be something that we get to do as a community. But I know more than anything else, if nothing else, God has some things he needs to say to me. Now, um, what we're going to be talking about is actually getting uh, written about in academic journals in a, in a whole host of different spaces. Uh, medical journals, this is being written about. Uh, theological journals, it's being written about. Economic journals, it's being written about. Psychological journals, uh, it's being written about. I, I'm not going to tell you quite yet what it is, but I will in a, in a bit. What I'd like to do is just kind of spell out what we're going to do this morning, okay? Uh, this morning is really a setup for the rest of our series. And this morning, what I want to do is set up the problem. So we'll spend a little bit of time setting up the problem. I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit, if you'll allow me to. Then we're going to take a quiz together in the middle of the sermon. Every single one of you is going to take a quiz. We will get a grade on the quiz. Don't freak out. You don't have to tell anybody, but we will take a quiz. And then afterwards, we're going to allow Scripture to help us understand what it is that will happen if we don't address the problem, what God desires for us. Really kind of lay a little bit of a framework, a groundwork for what we'd like to do in the weeks to come. So, to kick it off, I'd like to kind of set up the problem a little bit, okay? And I'd like to do that by nerding out, if you'll allow me, on a brief history of time, timekeeping, and speed. You ready? So, timekeeping really kind of began about 1500 BC with the invention of the sundial, 
All right. Up until that time, basically everybody just followed whatever the sun and moon were doing, and that's just kind of what it was. And you didn't really so much have uh, hours at all. You just had days. And when the sundial comes about, about 1500 BC, uh, we think somewhere in that ballpark, it's the first time that, as far as we know, humanity was ever able to kind of measure or break up time within a day. Uh, in fact, Isaiah 38 is, we think, uh, the oldest written description or discussion about a sundial. Uh, it talks about the dial of uh, Ahaz and uh, kind of talks about how it gets split up. Now, by 250 BC, Rome, the city, had one of the first sundials that kind of helped keep some measure of time uh, for the entire city. Now, uh, there was a playwright. Uh, his name was uh, Plautus, and Plautus was a comedic, 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 not comedic. That'd be like comedic. That he was not. He was a he was a comedy writer, and uh, he wrote this in 195. Listen uh, to what he says. He says, "The gods confound," which just means destroy. The gods destroy the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound or destroy him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. And we've been complaining about a lack of time ever since then. So if you're ever running late. You can just quote a little Plautus, make yourself feel a little bit better, be all good. Now, uh, historians kind of then attract the next major thing. Doesn't happen for almost 3,000 years till about 1200, 1300 AD. And that's when clock towers began to be built, erected in cities in the West, uh, kind of Europe, uh, Cologne, Germany tries to lay claim to the fact that they had the first one, but there's also some that were uh, built in East Asia as well. So we're not 100% sure, but around this time, clock towers begin to be built. Now, at first, they don't even have faces that tell the hours. They just, on the hour, they would chime. And so that's how the whole city would know what time it is. And that was the first time. In fact, uh, if you live in a city, which most of us do, you know that cities tend to feel faster, right? Things move quicker. There's more honking and rushing and lights and everything just feels more sped up. Uh, this is traced all the way back to this. Uh, clock towers weren't erected in the country. <laughs> they were erected in the city and they were always the tallest building in the city. Now we see clock towers and they don't seem all that tall compared to our giant skyscrapers. But at the time, they were the tallest thing. Why? So you could like literally step out and you could see it. You would know out of your shop. Cities have always been the place of speed. In fact, we used to kind of joke, right? City, you're sped up. Oh, I need to slow down. Where do you go? The country. <laughs> out of the city, right? Ah, I can relax out here. The problem is, is that over 80% of Americans live in cities. Worldwide, it's somewhere around 75%, and it is rapidly increasing. 12, 1300 clock towers. Now, uh, after that, we get the next kind of major iteration in timekeeping and how our world gets sped up by Michigan's favorite son. That's right, friends. Port Huron native Thomas Edison. Did you guys know he's from Port Huron? Grew up in Port Huron. Thomas Edison created the first commercially available light bulb. All right? And so now we didn't have to go to bed when the sun went down. We can stay up and work all night if we want to. 
Edison creates the light bulb, and today in the U.S., the average amount of sleep that an individual gets is 6.8 hours. 6.8 hours. Go ahead and turn to the people that are your closest by. Tell them how many about hours you think you're getting on average at night. I find I'm somewhere about the national average, although uh, I know I do way better with eight hours of sleep myself. They said before the invention of the light bulb, the average American got between nine and 11 hours of sleep a night. No wonder we're all stinking tired today, right? We don't sleep enough. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I would probably stay up way too late, but man, I could sleep to like noon, sometimes even 1 p.m. Is that like, it blows my mind that I, and that was normal. Some of y'all are like, yeah, that's normal for me right now. I, I understand. Like, I'm an old man now. Like, nine o'clock comes and all of a sudden, like, something wakes up in my brain. Like, I can't sleep in the way that I used to. Uh, but that's what happened with Thomas Edison. It began to even speed things up even more for us. And then this past century, there, were, there was a whole host of inventions that were intended to help save us time. So we have things like the automobile, uh, highways, uh, washing machines, uh, programmable coffee pots, dishwashers, telephones in uh, your house and at your work, all these things. Isn't that a wonderful thing? She looks so excited to have like that beautiful... Everybody's like, why has it got to be a woman? I don't know. I didn't make it, okay? I just found it on the end. It's like some ad from the 50s. All right, so all these things that were intended to save us time. Uh, in fact, in the 1960s, futurists, people that get together and talk about the future, from all around the world actually said that we were going to be working way fewer hours. Uh, listen to this. This is a, a true story. One famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 was told that by the year 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year, and the main problem in the future would be too much leisure. What did you do with your five months of vacation last year? <laughs> Guess what? In 2018, it was found that Americans work four weeks more than they did in 1979. Four weeks more. We're not slowing down. All these things that were intended to save us time, intended to make our lives easier. In many ways, they have, right? I don't think anybody wants to go back to like hand-washing clothes. But it changed so many different things in our lives that we thought would be better, but actually has just made us speed up even more. And that brings us to the very last and major change the biggest change that actually happened in 2007. Now, it's really difficult. Historians see this as a watershed moment, but we're so close to it that it's hard to really, like you need more time usually to recognize watershed moments. But historians still think this is it. Uh, I'm going to let you guess what you think it might be. So turn to the person next to you. See if you might be able to figure out what that thing was that happened in 2007 that has kind of changed us forever. 
How many of you think you might know? <laughs> yeah, he's actually even held it up. That's right, friends. In 2007, Steve Jobs unleashed the iPhone into the world. Now, 2007 was a watershed moment, not just because of the iPhone, but many historians are actually looking to that year as a year where things drastically change, especially when it comes to the idea of hurriedness, busyness, and lack of attention. And they don't only attribute it to the iPhone, but there's a whole host of things that happened uh, kind of November of 06 through 2007. So the very end of 06 and into 2007. Let me tell you a few of those things. Google also launched the Android. They also bought YouTube that same year. Facebook opened up to anybody with an email address that same year. It was year one for Twitter, the cloud, the app store, and it was the first year that Intel moved from silicon to metal in their chips, which made them faster, more powerful, and smaller, which meant that our phones could now do everything. You used to have to carry them an atlas, a flashlight, a phone, a camera. I could go on and on and on, and now all of that is found where? You really want to know how to kill a frog? Put an iPhone in its pocket. So what has this progress done, my friends? This progress has destroyed our ability to pay attention. Let me give you a few facts. The average iPhone user touches his or her iPhone 2,600 times a day. I thought that was like impossible. Then I started thinking about how often I have my hand just in my pocket. Checking, pull it out. Oh, was that a phantom vibrate? Yes, it actually was. Again, that I feel all the time. Take it out, flip it over, look at it, click it, check it, do this. 2,600 times, I say. Just being in the same room as our phones, even if they're turned off, will reduce someone's working memory and problem-solving skills, researchers have found. The average U.S. consumer spends a whopping five hours a day on mobile devices. 80% of 18 to 24-year-old Americans sleep with their phones right beside them for easy access to first and last thing that they see before they go to bed and when they wake up. All the college students are like looking at each other like, guess what? It's also the first thing that many 47-year-olds look at before they go to bed and look at when they wake up. Parents actually who spend a lot of time focused on their phones looking at screens are more likely to shout at their children. That was found in a study by Pediatrics magazine. More burnout, more anxiety, more depression, less focus, less energy. Sean Parker, who used to be, uh, he was the first president of Facebook, uh, actually said this about Facebook. He said, how do we consume, uh, oh, sorry, uh, the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? It's a social validation feedback loop. We are exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Uh, another guy who, uh, his name is Tristan Harris. He was a, a design ethicist at Google. That's an actual job. He no longer works for Google, but this is what he said. Everything is being intentionally designed for distraction and addiction because that's where the money is. Uh, they actually call this the economy of attention. There's tons and tons of things that are actually written 
about the economy of attention. 2005, I love this, this is so great. In 2005, uh, humans had an average attention span of 12 seconds, which I know sounds terrible. You're like, dang, that's it, 12 seconds? Yes. 2017, okay, so 2005, before the iPhone and Facebook and everything else came out. 2005, it's 12. 2017, it's eight seconds. A goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. True story. Humans are literally losing to goldfish these days. Now, you're probably saying, all right, uh, I get it, but is there anything else that's made a difference like this? There's probably one other major watershed moment that happened in human history uh, with regards to how we engage with written word was back in 1440, was when Gutenberg invented the printing press. Historians think that that and the iPhone of 2007 are probably two of the biggest watershed moments in how we experience and consume uh, forms of media. Of course, the printing press was just books. One invention was helping people experience the Bible. That's the whole reason that Gutenberg invented the printing press. And the other is keeping people from experiencing the Bible. Now, maybe you're looking at me like, yo, that feels a little harsh, T. Like you literally told us to pull out our phones a minute ago and use the internet to get to the churches, FYI. And I'm actually looking at my phone because that's where my Bible's at. I actually use my phone for the Bible. So doesn't that feel like a little overkill? And I'll be like, yeah, you're right. It is. I'm overstating it, right? Technology is not inherently bad. Cars are not inherently bad. Washing machines are not inherently bad. A coffee machine that will make my coffee at 5.45 on a Sunday morning, definitely not inherently bad, okay? Your iPhone is not inherently bad, but have we actually truly counted the cost of what the speed of the digital age is doing to us? Have we actually stopped for just a second to say, what is the speed of the digital age actually doing to our hearts, to our souls, to our minds? Just because meth can keep me up all night and focused and super productive doesn't mean it's good for me. If I'm at the top floor of a 100-story building, I can get down taking the stairs, but if I want to go quicker, I can just jump out a window. I'm going to get to the ground floor a lot faster, but what good is it going to do me if I'm dead? Uh, there's a uh, Korean philosopher, Byung-Chul Han. He wrote a book called The Burnout Society. He ended the book with this sentence, a haunting observation of most people in the Western world. He said, they are too alive to die and too dead to live. Which sounds a lot like what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? We are slowly dying from what physicians and economists and psychologists and theologians all have dubbed hurry sickness. Hurry sickness is something that, quite honestly, I hadn't heard a lot about. 
I think I maybe had heard somebody mention it once before. And then I started doing a little Google search. You can find articles all over from all those different fields on what hurry sickness is actually doing, how it's affecting our hearts, how it's affecting sickness and just disease in our bodies, uh, how economists are recognizing how it's making us actually less productive, what it's doing to our souls, which is what theologians actually care about. Psychologists care about what it's doing to us emotionally. Hurry sickness is literally becoming an epidemic in our society. And it's the kind of thing that we have found ourselves slowly getting boiled into. And very, very few times do we actually stop to pay attention and say, what's actually happening? What am I allowing? So what I'd like for us to do is uh, ask ourselves a question. Do I have hurry sickness? We're going to take a little quiz. Now, you're going to need your phone. <laughs> he just said about, I didn't say phones are bad. I'm just saying uh, we have to pay attention to what they're doing to us. So there's a little QR code up there. If you don't have a phone, it's all right. It's just you'll be able to do it a little quicker on your phone. It'll score it for you. But I'm going to flip through them on the screen. For those of you, I'll give you just a minute for those of you with phones to grab that QR and then uh, you can start taking it. We'll put up a little bit of music, give you a couple minutes to do that. For those of you that don't have it, uh, you can go ahead and just read it up there and then just remember how many yeses you had, all right? So let's go ahead and run that up there. There's going to be 10 questions. 10 questions. Or... I know, we're going fast. You're just going to have to. It's okay. You don't have to take much time with it. If it's a yes, you'll know it pretty quick. If it's a no, you'll know that pretty quick too. That's a long one. That's okay if you can't read it all. All right, this is the last one. You're finishing up. Remember, this is just like your first take on it. First take, don't overthink it. All right. How many of you have a score? If you took it online, you should be able to like click a button and it'll show you your score. All right. So zero to one. Those of you zero to one, 
Eh, pretty good. Well done. All right, if you scored a two to three, congrats. You're average in the worst way. You have at least a low-grade fever with hurry sickness. Meh. If you had three or four, <laughs> who doesn't love Spanky? That's like OG Spanky right there. Oh, boy. Yeah, you got some work to do. All right, what about uh, six plus? Yikes. Tell him, Jim. Seriously, that's scary. Some of you are like, yes! I got Jim from the office. Uh, when I took it, I had a seven. Some of you are like, dang, he is messed up. Yeah, I told you. See, I'm not lying. I'm messed up. All right? I've got work to do. I'm not preaching this series because I think it's something that you need. I'm preaching this series because it's something I know I need. I want to pay attention to my own heart and the pace of life. And the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we need to do this, the reason that we have to engage in this, we find in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Luke chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be reading uh, a passage in Luke 10 where there's really kind of three stories. It's kind of one story broken up into two parts and then another story uh, right after. They're pretty quick and they're pretty well-known stories. If you grew up in the church, this is going to be a pretty, uh, it's a passage scripture you're probably fairly familiar with. Uh, if you didn't grow up in the church, it's fine. I'll give you a quick kind of like context of where we're at. Um, Jesus is about to have an interaction uh, with a guy who's known as a teacher of the law. He's probably a Pharisee. These were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were Jewish and they followed the Old Testament, the Torah, and all of the laws in there. And these religious leaders really did not like Jesus very much. They were always trying to battle with him, trying to prove him wrong. Uh, they are the ones that really wanted to have him crucified. And so they're always trying to trip him up. And so we get a lot of stories in the Gospels, these uh, um, basically books that are written to explain Jesus' life and teaching. And this particular time, Jesus is interacting one, with one of these guys. And this guy's trying to trip him up, trying to ask him a question he doesn't think Jesus is going to know how to answer well, or at least then they can say he's, a, he's, he's not a, a godly man, he's, he's, a, he's a bad guy. They can like, you know, tell all the rest of the people he's not to follow him. So we pick up the story in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus doesn't answer his question, although Jesus has actually answered this question a few different times in some of the other Gospels. Instead, this time, Jesus turns the question back on the guy. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So the guy answers Jesus back. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's basically saying, you want to sum up the entire Old Testament, all the laws, really the entire Bible, well, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And look what Jesus says to him. You have answered correctly. <laughs> Good job, dude. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus actually uses those exact same words some other times when people are trying to question him. All right? And then Jesus says, do this and you will live. So what Jesus says is, if you want to sum everything up, 
You'd sum it up with this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it all hinges on. Then the guy, he like wants to try to figure out how to justify himself a little bit more. Okay, he's like, ah, I couldn't get him with that question. So he says to Jesus, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you have probably heard this parable before. There is a Jewish guy, and he is going from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? There's only one road that goes between Jerusalem and Jericho. Uh, it's actually not a very big road. When we think of roads, we think of like big, wide roads. This was more like a path. Sometimes it's as like narrow as about six feet wide. And there's a mountain that goes up one side, and then there's like uh, rocky kind of cliffs that go down the other into a, a, a deep valley, about 100, 200 feet down. Sometimes the road can be as wide as 15, 20 feet, but I've literally walked on this road that Jesus is talking about. And there's all kinds of bends in the road and little caves people can hide in. And so the Good Samaritan, uh, or sorry, this Jewish guy's walking. Some robbers jump out from behind a bend. They beat him up. They take this guy's clothes. Uh, um, they leave him basically half dead. And then Jesus says, and a priest was heading to Jerusalem. And the priest sees the Jewish guy who's beat up, naked, half dead laying there, and it says that he went around him on the other side. Now, whenever we think of that, we're like, oh, he must have crossed the street and got way over into the other sidewalk. No, no, no. He's like 10 feet away, okay? He, he wasn't like far from it at all, but he's on his way somewhere. And then it says that a Levite came. These are the two people that Jews would have especially believed should have stopped and helped their fellow brother. And he does the exact same thing that the priest does. He goes around on the other side. And then it says that there's a Samaritan that comes. And the Samaritan, that's like uh, the arch enemy of Jews. This is the last person you would expect to help a Jewish person. And what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan stops. And he goes over to this Jewish man who's been beaten up and robbed. And he takes clothes that he has and he binds up the man's wounds and puts clothes on him and he puts him on his own donkey and the Samaritan walks alongside the donkey so the donkey can carry this Jewish man and he brings him to an inn. And there's something really interesting that happens. Verse 35, he brings him to an inn and then in verse 35 it says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Key words there is the next day. If you want to love somebody, you will have to travel at the speed of slow. If you want to love God and you want to love your neighbor, you can't do it if you're in a rush. The priest, he was probably going to do something good. He's probably on his way to Jerusalem to serve at the temple. There's people that need to be served there. There's worship that needs to happen. He can't stop and take time. He doesn't have it. The Levite, probably the same thing. Good stuff to do. That's why when I was driving in this morning, I saw the lady who's struggling with a flat tire, and I was like, look, I just drove past. because I, I got to get here. We got to pray. <laughs> I didn't do that. The Samaritan had to take an entire day. I never really caught that before until I was studying it this week. <laughs> He brings this guy 
to the inn, and he winds up having to stay there till the next day. Now, Jesus goes on to share another story, actually, uh, Luke, who wrote this book about Jesus' life and his teaching, to share another story. We find it in uh, verse 38. It's right after the end of this moment. It says, Jesus, after he spent some time talking to this Pharisee, showing him what's what, says, and his disciples were on their way, and they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what Jesus said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to come help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. I think Luke puts these stories back to back on purpose. We're so distracted by a thousand different things that are running around in our heads, a thousand different ways that our phone is shouting at us and our schedules are shouting at us and the things that we just wind up filling our lives with, that it's easy to miss the most important thing. And it's not what Martha was doing was bad, necessarily. It's just that she couldn't pay attention to what was best. It's not that what the priest and the Levite were heading to was bad. It was just that they were not willing to pay attention to what was best. And I think God wants us to see ourselves in the story. (laughs) Are we more priest and Levite-like dudes? Are we more Martha-like ladies? Or are we more Good Samaritan-like more Mary-like. Um, John Mark Comer says, love and hurry are incompatible. They are oil and water. They simply do not mix. Carl Jung, a famous psychoanalyst and theologian, said hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Corey Tenboom, many of you have read her story, said if the devil can't make you sin, he'll keep you busy. When we are distracted, hurried, unable to pay attention, we cannot love God and we will not love others. Let me say that again. When we are hurried and distracted, we cannot love God and we will not love others. And Satan, oh man, he understands this. Satan doesn't show up with a pitchfork and flames, okay? (laughs) Uh, Satan shows up with another great show on Netflix to binge. He shows up with another Saturday in the office, another soccer game on Sunday, another alert on your phone, another fill in the blank for a thousand other things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but taken together, wind up leading us to a busy, hurried, fast-paced life that has no room to love God and love neighbor. God's kingdom is supposed to bring love, joy, and peace. That's what it's supposed to produce in us. But it can only happen when we learn to walk at the speed of love. Uh, Kasuki Koyama is a Japanese theologian. He wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Listen to what he says. God walks slowly because he is love. If he were not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has a speed, and though it is slow, it is ruler over all other speeds, since it is the speed 
of God. We won't love God, we can't love neighbor, if we don't learn how to wake up to the very thing that is trying to distract and ultimately kill us. Friends, this is your red pill moment. Take the blue pill and you wake up and everything stays the same. Take the red pill and we'll go down the rabbit hole to see what life Jesus may actually want you to experience. Here's the good news. Though we may be sitting in the boiling water and not realize it, none of us are dead yet. That means there's hope. Here's the bad news. If you want to know the solution, you have to come back next week. Father God, I will admit, Lord, that I need to hear this. And God, I don't want to preach it as a hypocrite. I really do want you to do a work in my own heart. I want you to continue to speak, God, in ways that not only I can understand, but give me the courage, God, to follow, to make the hard decisions. God, technology is not the enemy, but mindless consumption of technology is. And it certainly way too often draws me away from the life where I ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And Jesus, that's what you did. You always did that. That is the speed of love. God, I know I cannot love you when my attention is a thousand other places. When there's too much going on, too much speed, I just got to hurry past you, get through it. Thanks for your patience, Lord. God, I think this is something you want to teach each of us. You want each of us to grow in over these next number of weeks. So Spirit, we give you permission. Begin to train us in the speed of love, the speed of slow, for your glory. In Jesus' name.